With your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and the science advisor, Matt Moniz. And uh, we have a just a special show for you tonight. Something I've been wanting to talk about for a long time now, and that is dreams, and not just dreams in the paranormal, which is, you know, that's that's what we talk about here. I know it seems kind of strange. We haven't talked about it much in the last couple of weeks, but we do talk about things of a paranormal nature here on Spooky South Coast, and we kind of entered the idea of talking about dreams, uh, at least I did when I was planning the show, talking about dreams in the paranormal, how they relate to the paranormal field. But I realize there's so much more that we can learn about dreams. Uh, just doing research for the show and, and reading some, some books on the subject and checking out some websites, it, it actually serves such a purpose in our lives beyond what we talk about here on the show. So it's definitely, I don't know, something that if you're, if you're an avid dreamer, if you don't think that you dream, if you think that you dream abnormally, you know, some people say, gee, I... I never have these prophetic dreams that people seem to have. I never have dreams where I'm being chased or falling. All my dreams are about are just my everyday mundane life all over again. Well, there's, uh, there's definitely something for everybody in what we're going to talk about tonight. And while we're talking about dreams, we would love to hear from you and hear about your dreams. You know, not your, not your innermost desires, but your actual dreams that you have during your, your waking, uh, your sleeping state. And hopefully with our guests, we can help you figure out what's going on, what they mean, and uh, we're also going to talk about something else, something that you may not have heard about, uh, and that's something called lucid dreaming, and we'll get into that, because if you can master it, let me tell you, it opens up worlds of possibilities, so, and we will get into all of that with our special guests tonight. We have joining us on the line, Dominic Adesani. He works with Dr. Stephen LeBerge at the Lucidity Institute, which was uh, founded in 1987 by Dr. LeBear to support research on lucid dreams and to help people learn to use them to enhance their lives. Uh, lucid dreaming, of course, means dreaming while knowing that one is dreaming, and it allows you to consciously guide the direction of your dreams. The Lucidity Institute's primary mission is to advance research on the nature and potentials of consciousness and to apply the results of this research to the enhancement of human health and well-being. So uh, Dominic joins us tonight. He was supposed to join us during you know baseball season, but the Red Sox kept him off the air and... So now he's back with us to give it another try. How are you tonight, Dominic? Hi, Tim. I'm doing great. And no no uh, baseball tonight to worry about. So. <laughs> and, and thankfully, no uh, Celtics or, or Bruins here at WBSM either. So <laughs> as long as we wrap this up by 1 o'clock tomorrow, the Patriots won't interfere either. Great. So And, and you know, how uh, how are things? Uh, oh, you're on the West Coast, right? Oh, yeah. Things are great out here. Can't be as cold as it as it was supposed to be getting here. So no, it's uh, sunny California still. All right, and also joining us on the line we have Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who has been on the program with us before. And anybody who is a fan of the paranormal field or 
or, or the metaphysical field, you've probably read one of Rosemary's more than 30 books, including The Dreamer's Way, The Tao of Dreaming, The Encyclopedia of Dreams, Dreamwork for the Soul, and Dreamspeak, How to Understand the Messages in Your Dreams. She's written for Fate Magazine since 1991. She's currently a consulting editor, and in 2000, she formed Visionary Living Incorporated as a media company for her work. In 2001, she obtained a Ph.D. from the International Institute for Integral Human Sciences in Montreal. And, of course, you can check out her website, visionaryliving.com. Rosemary, how are you tonight? Hi, Tim. I'm doing great. And uh, we it's it's been a dream of ours to put this show together for a long time and to, to talk about dreams, not only how they relate to the paranormal field, but as a, as a tool for personal growth uh, and personal reflection as well. And both of you seem to uh, believe strongly in the fact that dreams can do that. Uh, Dominic, wh- how did you enter into the field of dream research to begin with, even, even without specializing in lucid dreams in particular? Well, you know, a lot of us have been, quote-unquote, dreamers uh, since the early days. I think when I was 13 or 14, I began uh, really uh, a strong interest in dreaming uh, in general and lucid dreaming probably just afterwards. started lucid dreaming in my mid-teens, there about 13 or 14, and cultivated an interest that's still with me now some 30 years later. And when you say that, you know, you started to realize you were having lucid dreams, did you know at the time? Uh, no, I think back in the 70s, when you experienced uh, consciousness while dreaming, it was often called an out-of-the-body experience because the, the general perception was you were in a real state and not in the, the body, which you know during your normal waking life. And, and most all the literature in those days was reflecting on out-of-the-body experiences or astral projection. I think more globally now, we understand that most of the experiences are what we consider a lucid dream. And Rosemary, you, uh, we saw your presentation uh, with Capers back uh, a few months ago in September, and you talked about achieving a higher level of awareness uh, through different means, and, and do you think that dreams are, were a way that you were able to achieve that? Yes, I do, Tim. Um, like Dominic, I got interested in dreams very early in life. Psychic dreaming runs in my family, and that got me very intrigued, not only about dreams, but about the paranormal. And uh, when I was in my early teens, I started experimenting with my dreams, sending messages in dreams, um, doing out-of-body travel, like uh, sort of dream remote viewing, um, trying to see into the future. And I had um, an astonishing degree of success with this. And that further um, stimulated my interest in looking into the paranormal. I do think that our dreams are very important to us, uh, not only in terms of our overall health and, and awareness, um, but also about our spiritual growth. They connect us to the higher realms. Um, they help us see the big picture. And they're definitely an integral part of the evolution of our consciousness. And now Rosemary looks at dreams from a more, you know, as she said, a more organic approach. Uh, now, Dominic, at the Lucidity Institute, it's more science-oriented. Uh, scientifically speaking, why do we dream? Well, I, I think we dream um, probably for the same reason that we think and are conscious during the day. I think that um, dreaming is just a normal aspect of living as much as being or being conscious during the day is an aspect of being living in, in oneself. 
So if you look at it as more of a continuum of consciousness, day and light, night, are not necessarily different. So dreaming is just another aspect of consciousness. One perhaps when we don't have the activities of the day and the sense inputs um, disrupting our conscious living. So I think at night when dreaming, uh, Rosemary might agree that this is an opportunity to not only understand the self, but things beyond the self. And But, you know, while we're awake, for the most part, I mean, except for people like me that are just totally absent-minded, for the most part, we can recollect a lot of our thoughts, processes during the day. Why is it that during the sleeping state we cannot recollect fully as we do uh, when we're awake? Well, I think if you mean by recollect, remember, I think we can remember if it's important to us and we want to put the effort to practicing remembering. Um, I, I, I think there's a little bit of confusion around what it takes to remember dream life. Um, mostly during the day, we're reinforced positively for remembering things that happen to us. Um, at night, we have a lot of experiences of consciousness, some of which are very intimate, very special, very important to us. But in the morning, when the alarm clock rings, we generally say, oh, time to get out of bed and deal with the important facts of life and not that ambiguity, that unimportant thing that happens at night. And I think that approach makes it difficult for the subconscious or the consciousness of night to see through during the day. I think by paying attention to your nocturnal um, transmissions of consciousness, it becomes quite easy to remember one's dreams, especially in the morning if you take the time to say, my dreams are important to me, I want to remember them, I want to be engaged with them. Um, very quickly afterwards, you'll notice that fragments, if not full dreams, become very accessible. But if you jump out of bed in the morning and say, it's unimportant, the subconscious or that aspect of you that values dreams, all of a sudden says, ooh, in the morning, he doesn't care, he doesn't want them, and we shun them. I, I think I read somewhere, too, that somebody made the, uh, the metaphor that dreams are kind of like uh, on your computer when you're running multiple processes at once, when you're mu running multiple programs. Some of them kind of fade into the background, and they're, they're running, they're there, but they're not the prominent, dominant window that you're working in. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting metaphor. It's where we focus, right? If we focus on the program as being important to us and we're attentive to it, we tend to recall it, we tend to be engaged with it, and it's of value. Where the other things that we're not attentive to fall into the background. Much the same way with other states of consciousness like dreams. If you're attentive to them, they become very accessible. If not, then they fall into the background. I think one of the uh, obstacles that uh, people face in the beginning is that because dreams speak in a very strange language, um, they they don't seem to have the immediacy or the importance. Um, they're very hard for people to understand, and so it's like, oh, God, i got to put time and effort into trying to decipher this. But actually, the more you get into it and you start to understand dream language, they're very easy to understand, and... Um, they take on uh, a, a much more prominent place in your overall awareness then. I think I agree. And I think one other thing psychophysiologically that comes to play is that um, during the waking life, during normal waking consciousness, our, our brain works at a certain level. And as we shift off into different states of sleep, our consciousness and the transformer, our brain, shifts into different gears. And during sleep and during dreams, we're in a particular state of mind, 
when awake, we're in a different state. So some of the work at the Institute, um, we believe, has led to the finding that, you know, memories are somewhat state-dependent um, and that in the dreaming state, um, it, it's somewhat different psychophysiologically from the waking state. Um, and so by shifting gears from sleeping to waking, oftentimes you can disrupt or forget some of those state-dependent memories from the experiences just a few moments ago. So one of the techniques that we recommend for people who are interested in reclaiming their dreams is to be very careful as they transition from sleeping into wakingness uh, not to disrupt the state for at least a moment or two as they try to grab or reclaim fragments or full dreams uh, on their own. Uh, to do that, we recommend that you don't move. You stay physically inert in bed and try to reach back with your mental grappling hooks and grab parts of those dreams before you jump out of bed and go to the shower. I mean, is it as simple as just laying there and, and uh, I mean, just uh, thinking about it, just lying still? and uh, it, It's as simple as that for many, uh, just to relax, to think about the thought you had just a moment ago and the thought before that and the feeling that you had or the impression and sort of free associating while you're in that state we call hypnopompia, the hypnopompic state rising from sleep into wakingness when you can actually grab, as I said, either fragments or full dreams. And by practicing collecting the fragments, you can often piece together the full dream right from the get-go. And then as you practice the technique, more and more the dreams come in full back to consciousness in that state between sleeping, that transition state between sleeping and wakeness. Well, that's going to be the hardest part, though, is training your brain to think backward when you wake up instead of thinking forward. I mean, I know when I wake up, the first thought I have is, well, first of all, I already overslept and I'm already 10 minutes late. But the first thought that I have is of something impending during the day more so than it is recollecting what's in the past. So that's going to be the hardest wall to break down. Well, I wouldn't think of it so much as a wall as a matter of priorities. If truly you prioritize the effort of the next hour or two getting up out of bed to work, and that's the most important thing, yeah, it'll be difficult to focus on the, the inner world. But I think if you set your alarm clock a half hour or 45 minutes before you intend on really getting up or throw away your alarm clock altogether and allow yourself to wake up more naturally, particularly on weekends, you can be more attentive to your dream state. Uh, sometimes our students um, take some of the rigor of our training to say that you have to do this every night. It's really not important to do dream work every night. It is very important to set aside a day or two days a week to practice dream recall and if that's a Friday or a Saturday evening when you don't have to get up the next morning, that's an excellent time. And as long as that's your priority and you really focus your intention on that, you'll find that dream recall isn't that hard to do and takes priority as long as your intention and your focus is on doing that. And, Rosemary, in your books, you talk about the importance of doing dream work and some of the different techniques. What do you suggest uh, that a dreamer can do to help strengthen their recollection? Well, certainly the things that Dominic has described are very effective for many people. Uh, for myself, I've found that uh, if I repeat the dream to myself, whatever I can remember, um, either sort of repeat it to myself mentally or even out loud or um, tell somebody about the dream, it's, it's um, getting it set in um, waking conscious memory is, is one of the important things. Otherwise, they're kind of like wisps of fog, and they just start evaporating as soon as you get up and, and start focusing on uh, daily activities. 
Um, and I often find that very helpful as a bridge to then when I can actually sit down and write down the dream. Um, recording it is, is very important. Um, when you have a dream diary to look over after a period of time, you begin to see certain patterns uh, in your dreaming, certain themes show up, um, the way information presents itself. And those are very easy to forget unless you have some kind of written record. But it's not always convenient to write something down right away immediately. So I find the repetition of, of the recall of the dream uh, very useful to holding it until I can get that down. I wholeheartedly agree with Rosemary. Um, the idea of repetition and journaling is critical. In fact, I think one of the techniques I'd recommend if you're trying to play in that transition between uh, sleeping and, co- and waking consciousness in the morning is to rerun through your dream, practice looking at the fragments and trying to feel what was before or to the side of the memory that you had, that little fragment, repiecing it together. And as Rosemary said, repeating it over and over, as you transition to waking, you can find that you can reconcatenate almost the whole dream with a little bit of practice. And then journaling, again, is key to fleshing it out. And, in fact, I think it's critical that you journal within a couple of hours waking or you'll find that even the most impressive dreams tend to, how should I say, become dilute or to run off into the ephemeral nature of the other side very quickly. That's very true. And even when we have dreams that are so vivid and powerful, we think we can never forget them. We do if we don't get a, a written account. Or a digital or recorder. A, right. Or even paint it literally take the artistic side and sketch out ideas, feelings, uh, colors, geometrics. Much of what happens in dreams isn't so left-brained as the wicked day world. And that's sometimes why we feel it's harder to forget because we're accessing a greater part of ourselves that is not necessarily so linguistic and critically oriented. So describing it out poetically in prose or in poetry, in art or in music, is um, a very important way, I think, of putting it down. Or, as you said, recording it even verbally. And how important is it to get into the, you know, what you think the symbology is of what you see? I mean, at what point do you want to look back and say, gee, I think that is, you know, representative of this? Or when you're first doing this initial recording, do you want to just put all that aside for that time and just stick to as much memory as you can? Rosemary? I think it's important to get as much detail down as you can without... Um, critical analysis because the minute you start uh, trying to analyze what you're writing down, what you're recording, you're going to start weighing, assessing, discarding things. And you want to just get the detail down as you remember it. Then you can go back and start intuiting associations, do the free association. Um, Mental imagery will come uh, to mind in associating with uh, the dream and that will always take you other places, too. Dreams are, um, they speak a very intuitive language. That is, a, a, they come across with a knowing, a feeling, a sensing quite often. And um, metaphors and puns and plays on words. And all of this is m- uh, much more of an um, artistic right brain kind of activity than a deductive reasoning. See, uh, the, re- I'm sorry. the reason why I bring it up, though, is uh, like I'll... As my day job, I'm a sports writer. And so when I go out and cover a game, I'll find that uh, if I'm on deadline, 
which, you know, if you think about it, you know, in the morning you're kind of on deadline sometimes with your ability to get some of the stuff down before it fades away. And when I'm on deadline, I find a tendency in my writing to analyze what I'm seeing as I'm seeing it and writing down my analysis. Uh, and the best way to do it, the proper way to do it, is to write down, you know, play for play what you're seeing and analyze it later so that you always have that record. So that's just what clicked in my head when we were talking about writing down your dreams is, you know, just the tendency because you're on quote-unquote deadline to try and do that analysis first and then you're just going to end up missing pieces and missing important recurring factors. That's why I figure a recorder would be better. A recorder, yeah. you're just speaking your mind, just, whereas in, uh, as you're a writer for a living, you would tend to self-censor yourself or edit yourself as you're writing. That, that's true. In fact, in the area of psi research, there's often, I think, the warning that you have to be very careful not to cognize or analyze too much because as soon as you wake up the left brain, it wants to all of a sudden interpret and overlay things that it thinks it knows on top of the messages or the motifs that are coming through from the subconscious. So I think in dream journals, you'll often find as you write down multiple dreams over time, you often find in the content, the content certain continuities and synchronicities that aren't apparent the moment you wake up. In fact, a lot of the dream signs that I use to identify opportunities for lucidity only became obvious to me after months of dream work in the journal. All right, well, why don't we take a break right now, and then on the other side we'll come back and we'll talk about lucid dreaming, how you can take a, not control of your dream, but how you can you know, effectively realize that you're dreaming and uh, what you can do from there. So we'll talk about that, and of course... You know, Dominic uh, at the Lucidity Institute, they run all kinds of clinics and, and special uh, experiments as well. That So you want to jump on their website and check that out, lucidity.com, L-U-C-I-D-I-T-Y.com. And, of course, we have a link up at spookysouthcoast.com as well. So check out that site. See some of these experiments you can try for yourself. Visit Rosemary's site, visionaryliving.com, and you can read some of her articles as well while we take a commercial break. And on the other side, we'll be back with more Spooky South Coast. Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services including Reiki, Kuan Yin, Magnified Healing, and Meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations' knowledgeable staff has over 40 years' experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. 
right, welcome back in here on Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Matt Moniz and Matt Costa, and we are talking about dreams with our special guests, Dominic Adesani of the Lucidity Institute and author Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And now, if you'd like to join in the discussion and you want to share some of your dreams, uh, share some of your interpretations of your dreams, maybe there's some recurring dreams that you're, you're wondering about, uh, there's plenty of ways to get a hold of us tonight. You can call into the studio, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Join in the discussion that way. If you don't feel comfortable talking on the air, you can get us on the message board. Matt Moniz is manning the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. So just go to that website, click on the message board, sign up, and then you can post your questions up there. And uh, if you're into the chatting thing, if you if you can keep up with two conversations at once, which I have trouble doing, you can go to spirit, spiritedsociety.net. And if you click on the left-hand side under the cattle skull, there's a chat link. They're nice enough to run a live chat for us during the course of the show each week. And you can jump in there and join in the discussion there as well and... And our friend in Eagles Angel is in there running the chat for us, and, and Matt Costa is there as well. So plenty of ways to get a hold of us, but of course, ideally, we'd love to hear the sound of your voice, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And Dominic, the Lucidity Institute, you know, specializing in lucid dreaming, how do you find that most people go to you? Is it that they've had these dreams and they want to learn how to, um, how to better dream lucidly or is it something that they're not able to achieve at all and they're looking to start from scratch and get involved in it well i don't think it's an either or it's both and mm-hmm. i think for other reasons as well um many people have heard about the state of lucid dreaming and are interested in it as a space to um either explore the innermost reaches of the mind or move outside the mind into other realms uh, others have had the experience of lucid dreaming and have been able to potentially um, recall it or do it occasionally without much effort or um, with a lot of effort, and they're looking for more ways to hone their skills. So we have everything from people who have just read about it to relatively experienced lucid dreamers who want to enhance their skills. So it's, I think, all of the above in a continuum of uh, capabilities. Because it's something that I never really thought about uh, until I started you know, a couple of years ago, reading more about dreams, and, and I was like, you know, I've never had a lucid dream. But then, as time goes on, and I think more and more about it. I, I have had lucid dreams. Yeah, I think that's one of the big tricks or misnomers is that um, people say, "Well, I've never been in a dream and aware that I'm dreaming." But if you ask that same person how often they remember their dreams, they say rarely or occasionally. And generally, what we find is in talking to people that, in fact, yeah, they've had lucid dreams, but much like the tree that falls in the forest and nobody's there to remember it, they don't remember their dreams. So that's a metaphor I like to use. If you're aware of what's going on in your nocturnal life, oftentimes you'll note that, yeah, you had some lucidity or a full-blown lucid dream, um, and it was as simple as you know being awake during the day. But the trick is to recall it. And, and for those really unfamiliar, and we've touched upon briefly a little bit of the definition of lucid dreaming, but it's not really being in control of your dream as much as it is just being aware of the fact that it's a dream and is it more you are able to just sit back and once you know it's a dream you can kind of enjoy and explore your surroundings more or is it kind of i mean because some not all lucid dreams are pleasant right i think probably we ought to go on the definition a little bit Mm -hmm. sometimes lucid dreaming the word lucidity 
is misunderstood as being clear or real crystalline dreaming. Uh, I think a better word is probably cognizant dreaming, so that when you're in the dream, you're cognizant of the fact that you're not awake and you're in a dream and doing something. So as a baseline definition, cognizant dreaming is probably more accurate than the um, standard uh, term lucid dreaming. Um, Dream control is one of the variables when one is lucid dreaming. How much control do you have? Um, I wouldn't say that most of us sit back and just let things happen. Most of us are very engaged uh, in our waking life and things that happen around us. And so in a lucid dream, we're engaged with the dreamscape and have a certain amount of control, oftentimes uh, a high level of control. So, for example, if I'm outside my house, I realize that I'm in a lucid dream and my lawn is a dreamscape and my house is a dream house and I feel the urge to fly, well, I have the control to fly and go wherever I want to go, potentially go visit a person or do something that I've always wanted to do. So in that sense, there can be a high degree of dream control. On the other hand, if I said, you know, in this particular dreamscape, I want this dream character to jump up and down and turn blue in the face. And while he's doing that, I want the dream character to the right to jump up and down and touch his big toe. And I want the walls of the dreamscape to turn blue. You're asking for a lot of things to go on simultaneously, and you actually have to fragment your consciousness to focus on multiple willful acts. So when we say dream control, we have to be careful about what we mean by it. Does it mean that you're the god of the dream? Every aspect from the ground below your dream feet to the walls and the dream house and the people around you, you're going to manipulate in every microsecond of the experience or is it something else? So uh, that's a little bit pedantic, but mm-hmm. I, I think the point is that you have a lot of dream control within the dreamscape. In fact, you can change the setting of the dream, but how much do you want to participate in the dream and how much do you want to manipulate the dream, I think, is a question for all of us to think about. Because being the manipulator may be somewhat boring. Well, exactly, yeah, because you're, you're not able to... A non-lucid dream, you know, you can recollect it and think back and say, wow, what an experience that was. But if you're controlling the dream, you know, and you make it what it is that you want it to be, all you're really doing is just the same thing that you do when you're awake. You know, yeah. You're I mean, guiding it take, yourself. It could take some of the fun out of it. It takes definitely some of the spontaneity out of it, but... Oftentimes, the dream has something to show us. Um, for example, having a dream of a parental figure. And there's usually something behind that where the, the, the subconscious or the, the higher self is bringing your dream parent to you for some reason. Why are you, are you dreaming about your mom or your dad? Uh, is there a message? And if you merely want to go and control the figure and you know, beat up on your dad... What helpful outcome comes from that willful action? If you were to say, all right, dream dad, what are you here to tell me? You might have an important message from your father on the other side or from your father inside. Now, Rosemary, what about on an emotional level? Do you find that when you're dreaming lucidly, uh, obviously, you know, if you can say, for example, fly in your dream, you'll still feel that exhilaration. What if it's a dream that's not so positive in terms of the other aspects of what's going on? Do you still have a fear? Do you still have a, a sense of uh, disappointment or, or mourning, depending on the subject of the dream, even though you know it's a dream? 
I think in lucid dreams, at least in my own experience of them, uh, emotions are definitely intensified. And I've had very pleasant, exhilarating lucid dreams, and I've had some very unpleasant lucid dreams. Uh, for example, sometimes when I've been, um, when I've slept in places that are haunted, um, I have a, a type of dream invasion uh, where um, I'm interacting with whatever is, is on site, and sometimes that's not always pleasant. Um, it's useful in those cases to, uh, to be able to say, oh, this is a dream, and I can end it, I can get out of this. Um, but I do believe that our dreams are mirrors of truth, and that applies to most lucid dreaming as well, that they do have something to show us, and um, if if I'm in a lucid dream and I'm able to hang on to that lucidity, uh, I kind of want to see where it goes rather than trying to manipulate the dream to do something. Because if I allow the dream to unfold, I may have a more um, enlightening experience than if I try to get it to conform to something that I want to happen. I know I, I said to, to Dominic previously uh, when we talked before, I, I mentioned to him that I only sleep four hours a night. Uh, both because of my schedule and just because of some some physical issues that I have, and I I told him one of the things that I wanted to do is learn to dream lucidly so that I can in my dream sleep for twelve or fourteen hours, so that maybe when I wake up after four hours I'll feel a little bit more refreshed. But I think after a while I'd get kind of bored with that, and I think being able to control my dreams and and to set the course of where they're going to go would probably get old after maybe the second or third time and. I'd miss that random aspect of what thoughts are going to string together tonight. You could certainly set an intention. Uh, for example, if you were doing incubation for lucidity, you might set an intention to uh, experience something or uh, visit some place or have some sort of encounter. Um, that's not quite the same as manipulating a dream throughout, but it, it certainly could set the stage for a certain kind of dream experience. I think also the, the things that can be done during lucid dreaming are only limited by your own creativity. Um, for example, we often find that with some of our students who get to be very prodigious lucid dreamers after one of our seminars within a couple of weeks, like you said, Tim, they run out of things to do. And I usually instruct them that, wow, you know, there's lots of fun things to do merely in the dreamscape. Um, in the phenomenology itself of a dream, you can go explore. How hard is a dream table? How easy it is to put your dream hand through a dream wall? That fact that gravity really doesn't exist, but when you're floating or flying, you feel that you can't get higher than you know, 20 or 30 feet. Why is that so? And so you can take just the novelty of being in a different reality as being something to go play with, at least for a while. And then, as Rosemary said, allowing your intention to take you to new places without having necessarily a focused, willful desire to do something in specific. We found that dreams of what we call dreams of transcendence, uh, meeting um, godly-like figures, parts of ourself, um, the other side, all are more based on those open-ended questions on what am I all about, what's reality about, what's God about. Um, those things can be accessed through the dreamscape. Now, Rosemary, you mentioned dream incubation, uh, you know, preparing yourself uh, to dream and to dream lucidly. How can you go about, uh, I mean, I know that it's going to take practice no matter what method you use, 
uh, and maybe some experimentation to find what works best, but what are some of the the means to achieve lucid dreaming uh, prior to going to sleep? Well, the easiest is to uh, write an intention like you would write an affirmation and uh, to think about it, contemplate it, meditate on it throughout the day, and certainly before you go to sleep. Uh, it's a good idea not to be too busy uh, right before sleep, um, to, like to try and do work uh, in bed or um, be engaged in a lot of intense mental activity. It's a good idea to kind of quiet the whole um, mental and spiritual energy and to be able to focus on your intention as you go to sleep. There are certain visualization techniques. Um, I've experimented, for example, with Jeremy Taylor's technique of putting the blue light um, in the throat at the throat chakra uh, with the uh, symbol of the uh, the OM um, there, and I've had some success with that. I have also experimented with um, mugwort uh, sachets in my pillow, uh, drinking catnip tea, um, before going to sleep, and um, I've had varying degrees of success with all of these things. Uh, so I think you have to experiment to find out what really works for you. One of my favorites, for example, is to um, drink catnip tea and um, do some meditation on intention and maybe some light spiritual reading, make sure that I'm well uh, relaxed before I go to sleep, and that quite often will facilitate a lucid dream experience. And there's there's some other methods uh, that I've heard as well. Uh, uh, Carlos Castaneda in in the Don Juan books talked about looking at your hands as you go to sleep. And uh, I know that George Norrie in um, Worker in the Light talks about staring at the clock as you fall asleep, the digits on the clock. And when you reach the point where you can no longer make out the numbers, that's when you can realize that you're in a dream. I, I mean, are these like quick little tricks to maybe start off uh, in, in the world of lucid dreaming as a because I know that as soon the first time I achieved it I used George's idea of staring at the clock and once I realized that I was dreaming that was it I was awake most of those techniques um, I think are worth trying but mm-hmm. there are some more tried and tested techniques that I might recommend if they're not those other methods aren't working for you well, one of the things I should say about the Castaneda technique that's interesting is the looking at body parts is a commonality in many meditations that go back thousands of years. So if you look at most of the uh, Eastern meditations or the chakra work or even uh, Robert Bruce's work on astral dynamics, you'll find that the commonality is focusing on chakras or on the body image. And that, that sort of resonates with me when I look at Castaneda's hand. There's something about the dream body and focusing on the body that resonates um, with many of the techniques. But I was hinting at a, a more tried and true method earlier. One of the things you need to understand before we get into the techniques, I think, is the way that people sleep and dream. Uh, most of us believe that we, quote-unquote, fall asleep and then wake up. That metaphor is really wrong. We don't fall asleep and wake up. I think more accurately, we porpoise through the night going down, rising back up on the top, going down again for what the sleep researchers say are six or seven cycles. The cycles are roughly 90 minutes long and are increasingly crammed with REM sleep or dream sleep. So early in the night, your first 90-minute cycle has just a little bit of REM at the tail end, maybe 4 or 
the second 90-minute cycle may have six or seven or eight or ten minutes of REM. And that latter part of the cycle increases more and more with dream sleep. So that when you wake up in the morning, let's say 8 o'clock in the morning after going to bed at midnight, you may have as much as a half hour or 45 minutes of REM or dream sleep. So one of the tricks in practicing lucid dreaming is perhaps not focusing on those first couple of cycles of the night. I oftentimes go to bed and say, all right, first couple of cycles is my deep, restful, physiological sleep. I'm going to allow myself to sleep and perhaps, as Rosemary said, set an intention. So if I happen to wake up in a dream state, I'll know what I want to do. And more importantly, I'll try to get up after the third or fourth sleep cycle, which would mean for me, well, let's say 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. At that point, the body craves REM sleep or dream sleep. And I may stay up a half hour or 45 minutes, and then I'll go back to sleep with the intention of really focusing on dream work, particularly lucid dreaming. And we have a much higher probability of reaching lucidity later in the morning when REM is very close and very stabilized than earlier in the night. Now, I know that the uh, Institute offered for a while a device known as the Nova Dreamer. Mm -hmm. And and how did that work? Uh, Well, the Nova Dreamer was, mm, let's see, basically in the late 80s, Dr. LeBurge and other researchers had noted that there was, you know, a certain physiological correlate to one dreaming and then lucidity. Uh, In dreaming, you were almost always in REM, particularly with the very, very uh, deep, vivid dreaming that we associate with lucidity. Uh, REM, rapid eye movements, was the major correlate. In addition, there's, you know, um, muscle relaxation and certain brain profile frequencies that are very close to, frankly, being awake. So in a $50,000 lab at Stanford, we were able to stimulate people uh, into recognizing they were dreaming by signaling to them when they were in the right profile. So think of yourself as being in a dream and psychologically, let's just say, drunk. You know, you're not sure what you're doing. Drunk is perhaps not word, just not, not, not conscious or not cognizant. And then in the lab, when we saw people had the right profile for dreaming and lucidity, we'd signal them. First, we'd try to whisper in their, their ear, you're dreaming, you're dreaming. Wake up, you're dreaming. And oftentimes people would literally wake up. They yeah. heard the voice. So we went back and trained them that, hey, when you see a particular set of signals in lights, be aware and test to see if you're, in fact, dreaming or awake. This flashing of the lights was done manually by lab techs when they actually saw that people were in the right dream profile. So you toggle these little goggles, light switches on and off. We found a way to automate that through a little biofeedback device that eventually became the dream light and successor of the Nova Dreamer. And it basically watches the way your eyes move at night, and when it sees that you're fitting the profile of REM sleep, it waits about five minutes, and then it signals you with little flashes of light. If you're a deep sleeper, flashes of light and sounds in order to sort of nudge you into becoming aware, not so much to wake you up, but to wake you into awareness. And, and, it, and it had a lot of success. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it's very popular. Because I noticed it's, it's no longer available from the website. Is it just not in production anymore? Or? Well, two things are going on. One, the Institute sort of reformulated itself to be much more of a research and educational foundation mm-hmm. where 
in its prior incarnation, it was much more focused on being a small business to not only do research, but to focus on product sales. So one, Dr. LeBurge has refocused the Institute more and more on research and education, and trying to find a way to bring the technologies back to market um, through partners uh, in a business venture. Um, secondarily, we have a newer version of the technology that should be um, much more accurate and, I think, lower cost to bring to a wider uh, level of dreamers in the market. You're going to have to let me borrow one anyway, because I already sleep with a sleep apnea mask on, so a little more isn't going to bother me. Well, Tim, you're welcome to join us at any one of our Dream Camp seminars. We run them twice a year, and almost everybody gets to use them for a week and a half at the seminar as one of the means to learn lucid dreaming. It's only one way. It's just uh, like having training wheels. Bicycles are required, but training wheels aren't. And and once you can develop techniques to dream lucidly, does it still work that you can almost set it up to do it whenever you want? I mean, Rosemary, I know it's something that you only do on occasion. It's not something you would do every night. But could you do it every night if you wanted to? Well, you certainly could, but um, I think it would get to be kind of tiring after a while um, because uh, there's a lot of energy that goes into that kind of dreaming uh, I, I do know people who naturally lucid dream uh, almost every night, uh, and they remember multiple lucid dreams, uh, and that seems to be part of their natural dreaming state. For me, it takes a lot of energy to um, to engage in um, that kind of dreaming, and um, it also takes a lot of energy to process it, too. So for me, it's something that I would like to do occasionally, but not every night. And do you find I mean, what what do you how do you apply lucid dreaming to your waking life? Do you use it as like an extra step on meditation uh, without the blockage of your uh, conscious awareness getting in the way uh, to try to solve issues or, or maybe get to the root of problems that you can't? Seem I, I to? certainly have used um, dream programming and dream incubation um, for guidance and problem solving creativity. You know to help me in my my work. But more important, um, dreaming uh, helps me explore and learn about consciousness. And I'm, my whole um, work in the paranormal is, is uh, aimed at understanding uh, the role of consciousness in our ability to experience the multiverse, multidimensional self and multidimensional reality. Dreams are a very powerful way to explore other realms, other states of being and consciousness. Also move through the timeline. They, they really transcend time and space. Uh, so uh, in terms of the paranormal, I think they're one of the most important uh, tools and avenues for exploring where we fit into the whole picture of things and what is reality uh, what, uh, in relation to other realities. Well, definitely in the second hour, we'll talk more about dreams and, and how they relate to the paranormal. We are coming up on the news, uh, but we do have a caller on the line, so let's uh, see if we can take this call real quick. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? All right. You are on with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Dominic Adesani. I have a question for Rosemary. Okay. Yes, Rosemary. Can you tell me anything about the uh, cemetery on Plain Meeting House Road? West Greenwich, Rhode Island. Um, I hear there's a legend about... Yes, uh, that's where uh, Nellie Vaughn is buried, I believe. Yes. 
that right? Yes. Um, it's alleged to be haunted. I have been there once. Um, I had the pleasure of going there with uh, Keith Johnson. And um, I did not, uh, well, actually, I did have a paranormal experience there, what might have been a paranormal experience. But I've not been there at night. Um, she is associated with vampirism, um, mistakenly. So there was a big wave of tuberculosis that went through New England back in the 1800s and um, a lot of old world superstitions about vampires were attached to people who died from that. So she's been associated with those legends uh, like Mercy Brown uh, and uh, her apparition is supposed to be seen there uh, at night. There's also other phenomena that people have reported um, figures sitting on top of uh, um, a large vault-like tomb. Um, there were two strange dogs that showed up while, while Keith and I were there, and um, they did not come into the cemetery, uh, and then they just disappeared. Uh, there's some local lore there that there are two phantom dogs in the area, which I was not familiar with before I went to the cemetery. So did I see real dogs or did I see phantom dogs? I don't know. Um, but it was a very strange experience, and, and that's and who, about all I can tell you. Who is this person that you investigated with? Uh, Keith Johnson. He is a demonologist, and he's done quite a bit of work with TAPS. I don't think I've ever heard of the guy. Uh, he's in Rhode Island. He's, it, caller, are you familiar with him at all? I think I've heard of him once or twice. <laughs> Rosemary, it's actually Keith on the line. Oh. This is what he likes to do to people. He calls up and tricks them when, uh, when they're on I'm sure you didn't sentence. recognize me because hey, I have laryngitis. <laughs> you devil. <laughs> well, well, not his line of work. You don't want to accuse him of that. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's it's uh, it's nice of you, Keith, to, to call in and, and trick Rosemary like that. Well, I figured I had laryngitis, so I, I, I was playing the part really well. You thought so. you could get away with it tonight. Well, you know, your voice sounded sort of familiar, but I wasn't too certain, and, you know, it's well, talk he, to a lot of people you don't really know. He's a talk show host now, Rosemary. So Is he really? He's working on developing that talk show host voice, you know? Oh, That's, yes. <laughs> and I, I definitely want Rosemary on my show, too. Well, well, next um, time she passes through this way. Well, now, Keith, uh, you've experienced, as I recall, you had experienced some other phenomena there. Yes. At the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, a, it is a rather strange place, and a lot of cult activity does take place there. And that is a thing about the two dogs there. They've been reported by other people that I've known personally, that they just appear, they turn around, and then they're gone, but they will never enter the cemetery gates, ever. That's what I found to be the strangest, was that they would not come inside the sacred boundary of the cemetery itself. And you know, I, I ran right out of that cemetery and looked up and down the road, and I saw no trace of them whatsoever. I know. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's something that maybe we'll have to get out there and check out sometime, Matt Moniz. We'll go out there with Keith and see what we can find, because, uh, you know, we used to have to tie a hand bone around Matt Moniz to get the dogs to follow him anyway. Yeah. So. 
<laughs> you know, I was going to work that in somehow. All right. Of course. We are coming up on the news. We'd like to thank Keith Johnson for calling in. We are coming up on the CBS News. On the other side, we'll jump into our number two of Spooky South Coast. We'll talk about the week and weird, some of the strange happenings that you may not have heard on your regular news reports. And then we'll jump right back in the conversation about dreams right here on Spooky South Coast. First, with local news, talk, and sports, this is WBSM New Bedford, Citadel Broadcasting, AM 1420, WBSM. Hi everybody, Tim Weisberg here from Spooky South Coast, wishing you a happy holiday season. And of course, now it's time to start getting that shopping done. We've had our Thanksgiving turkey, and now we've got to think about heading out to the stores and finding just the right gifts. Well, you don't actually need to do that anymore, because through the wonders of the internet, you can do all your shopping at home. And even if you'd like to give somebody something homemade, but you don't have the time to do so, well, Knitbits has you covered. If you just go to their website, knitbits.etsy.com that's k-n-i-t-b-i-t-s dot e-t-s-y dot com you can find great homemade crocheted and knitted items for sale uh, right now on Knitbits they have a crocheted cell phone holder for three fifty. they have crocheted baby bibs for $10 and even a complete baby set for $25 and if you go to the Knitbits site you can also contact Knitbits there as well. If there's something you'd like to have made that isn't there, or if there's something you like you'd like to see in a different color, just shoot them an email, let them know what you're looking for, and they'll be happy to comply. And of course, all items on Knitbits' website is guaranteed. They have 100% positive feedback. Imagine the smiles on people's faces Christmas morning when they open up a homemade knitted item from Knitbits. So if you would like to find out more, again, knitbits.etsy.com. So, from all of us at Spooky South Coast and from everyone at Knitbits, happy holidays and happy shopping. Spooky South Coast, a phenomenon that holds the key. You are experiencing deja vu. Deja vu. Deja vu. I can smell your tears. I'm not afraid. You will be. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast on this very special show, Dreams and the Paranormal. And we'll get back into the discussion with our guests, Dominic Adesani of the Lucidity Institute and author Rosemary Ellen Guiley. In just a few minutes, uh, some programming notes for you here on Spooky South Coast. Next week, our guest will be Thomas D'Agostino, who has written a book about Haunted Rhode Island. Uh, he's written a couple of books, but we're going to talk to him about Haunted Rhode Island. We may even have some special guests coming into the studio as well for that night. Can't be sure yet, but you never know what's going to happen, especially when you're talking about Haunted and the state of Rhode Island. So that's uh, the only hints I'm giving right now. And then... 
after that, the week after that, which uh, I had a problem remembering the date last week. I know that that was kind of a problem, but it is actually the 16th of December. I checked the calendar, so now I, I can't just add seven. That's too much work for me. So, On the 16th of December, Rick Hayes, Paranormal Communications Consultant Rick Hayes, will be back with us from Life's Gift, and he's going to take your calls on the air. And he's going to try and connect with the spirit of your loved ones who have passed on. He wants to help you get in touch with uh, those who have crossed over to the other side. And, you know, if there's something that's really weighing on you uh, at any point, you can always go to his site, lifesgift.com, and you can sign up for a site membership there and, and get a hold of him that way as well. But we're going to have him on with us on the 16th to take your calls live. And then we have all kinds of stuff planned in the new year. We're going to have our... I guess now we're going to do it annually, our Bridgewater Triangle show with Chris Pittman and Chris Balzano, and we'll, we'll bring Aaron Kadju back in as well. We're going to talk about the Bridgewater Triangle every year. One show uh, in February where we kind of talk about some of the new information that's come to light and re-examine some of the old evidence as well. Uh, maybe uh, send some people out into the Bridgewater Triangle with some live reports as we did with uh, Route 44 a couple of weeks ago. And then some other programming notes. Dr. Lewis Cherry will join us in February as well. And also a very special show we're putting together uh, about the station fire incident from a few years ago. We're going to talk about a little bit of a paranormal connection uh, in the aftermath of that tragic event. So if you want to keep up to date with all of the things that we're going to be talking about, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. Check out the blog there. Sign up for our MySpace account, Spooky South Coast uh, on MySpace. Oh, I'm sorry. MySpace.com slash Spooky South Coast. And we send out bulletins there all the time. And when we when we get somebody locked in, we'll let you know. So that is a little bit of the programming note. And now we'll do the, we'll do the uh, you know, we got to do it. Uh, CafePress.com slash Spooky South. Spooky South Coast merchandise redesigned and lowered prices. So if you want to get a T-shirt for somebody for the holiday season, uh, we have a nice notebook there that would be a perfect dream journal if you want to use that to write down some of your dreams. And uh, we also have uh, different things with our faces on it, which is sure to give you nightmares as well. So it ties in quite nicely to what we're talking about tonight. But now we're going to talk about something that we like to call the Week in Weird. And our first story for the Week in Weird is something that actually just came across the wire uh, in the last few days, but it's definitely relating to what we're talking about tonight by Dan Zack of the Washington Post. It's January 2009. Imagine for a moment that the new president begins his inaugural address by saying he has written down and studied his dreams. With a level head and without detouring into the psychic or prophetic, he says he hopes to understand himself better by doing some dream work. Imagine the CNN ticker. I mean, how would you? How would that go over in the press, says Gail Delaney, who for the past 30 years has driven to mainstream dream work, the practice of sidestepping classical dream interpretation for a more nuanced, personalized meditation on one's dreams. Delaney is the founding president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. She has written books and virtually shorted out the lecture circuit in the United States and Europe. Still, many people think dream work is bosh and bunkum. Prejudice against dreaming is huge, she says, in part because so much nonsense is written about it. Ask any professional with dream experience and their message is clear. Ignore quick-fix dream doctors on TV and the Internet. Toss your conventional dream dictionaries to the curb. They are too strict, too patrician. And of course, both of our guests tonight can tell you that because they, their analysis of dreams is you know, unlike this mumbo-jumbo stuff that you hear a, a lot of the older uh, books practicing. 
After all, the dream about a house must mean different things to a carpenter and to an arsonist, says Karen Shinora, a clinical psychologist in Washington. Dreams should be worked rather than cut and dried into categories. No book and no one can tell you what your dreams mean because one's dreaming life can be understood only in the context of one's waking life. And as Dr. Phyllish as that sounds, dream work is a matter of self-therapy, of being open to the possibility that reflecting on your dreams may yield some holistic or entertaining insights. People would just as soon think that dreams are random activity in your cortex, Delaney says. There are still huge swaths of movers and shakers whom I have as clients who say, if I tell anybody I've seen you, I'll have to deny it. So you can see some of the prejudices that exist against studying dreams. And what Rose Mary Ellen Guiley and Dominic Adesanya are telling you is it's part of your personal development. And, you know, they're right. No one book can tell you exactly what every dream means. Rosemary put out a terrific encyclopedia of dreams where she'll suggest some of the symbology and some of how they relate. And our friend Jeff Belanger, who uh, was going to join us tonight to talk about nightmares, uh, but he had some you know, personal business to take care of, he wrote the Nightmare Encyclopedia. And the same thing. They'll give you what some of these recurring themes might be, but they're not telling you that's a definite answer because it's different for every person, as, as we talked about in the first hour, and we'll talk about more in the second hour. So I just thought it was kind of interesting that I about it. The Washington Post runs this story, and maybe you know forces are starting to line up to really mainstream dream work and to make it you know, part of... It's gotten to the point where, you know, in the 70s, the 80s, uh, I go to a therapist, I go to a psychiatrist. You know, the negative connotation to that went away. It, the, the therapist was no longer the head shrinker, and he was now just another tool of personal development. So these days, almost everybody sees somebody for something or another in terms of their mental well-being. So dreams, I think, are just the next step into exploring that. So there's my soapbox for the week. Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? Well, what I got is something that comes uh, from France, off the AP. A cone head? <laughs> they come from France. Yeah, they do. Uh, police detain a man claiming to sell mummy hair. Okay. Uh, in Grenoble, France, uh, police detained a French postman behind an internet operation selling strands of hair and tiny pieces of cloth allegedly taken from a mummy of Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. If authenticated, Egypt wants the hairs back. The suspect, identified as Jean-Michel Dubois, allegedly obtained the items from his late father, a French researcher who analyzed the 3,200-year-old mummy in the 1970s. Judicial officials said, on condition of anonymity, because the case is still ongoing. The 50-year-old suspect, a postman who also writes for a local newspaper, was detained late Tuesday at his home in the town of saint Egrève the suburb of Grenoble in the southeastern France. Officials said he was released Wednesday, but is being investigated for allegedly possessing stolen goods. Police seized a dozen small plastic sachets and a box containing minuscule samples of hair and cloth that he allegedly came from Ramses II. Selling strands of hair from the mummy of Ramses II, or for about 2000 or $2,600, read the entry on the website. It said that the strands of cloth from the mummy were also were available. Dubois' wife, Sonia, insisted that an interview that the pieces were authentic and that she didn't know if the late scientist had the right to possess them. Egypt's antiquities chief, 
Zawahawas told the um, Associated Press in Cairo that he sent a letter to a France ambassador wondering if these claims were true. Excuse me. And saying that we want the hair back. He confirmed Hawass said France should carry out a big investigation into this matter. And uh, they are going to, con- and if it does prove to be, you know, Ramsey's remains or parts of it, they are going to return them back to Egypt. You know, I tried to sell some of my mommy's hair on eBay and nobody bought it. Well, there was this one creepy guy, but he didn't like the asking price. And she wasn't too happy with me for selling it either. She's like, that's, that's not nice to do. Now, you said that, oh, sorry, you said that that happened in Grenoble, France. Yeah. You know, you know who else came from Grenoble, France? Andre the Giant. So maybe it's actually Andre the Giant's hair. Because he was a pretty hairy guy, so. Oh, yeah. Andre Rusimov? Yeah, he's from Grenoble, France. That's his hometown. I know that because we had an exchange student when I was in high school who was from Grenoble. And, uh, you know, we said, where? We only know Paris. Where? And he's like, it's where Andre the Giant leaves. So, and sure enough, he was right. So. I thought he was from Greenland. No, no. He might have lived there. Yeah. But uh, I know he was originally from France, from a tiny little village. Speaking of tiny little villages, how about the village of one? Silent Assassin, Matt Costa. You haven't talked at all yet tonight. I haven't. Are you sure that you're ready to do this? Sure. All right. Oh, well, get weird do on I, us. Do I have to clear my throat on the air? No, no. Oh, right. I wasn't implying that at oh, all. okay. <laughs> Bright lights in the skies have baffled police and air traffic controllers in the United Kingdom. Air traffic controllers at Shoreham Airport and Brighton Police said they have received inquiries about UFOs, with as many as eight seen in the sky at one time. James Gordon Johnson of Preston Park Avenue in Brighton said he was leaving a restaurant in Shoreham with his brother at 11.30 on November 18th when he saw what appeared to be a very big orange light in the sky. Another one appeared and then another. A spokeswoman for the Shoreham Airport said staff had received several emails from people inquiring about the glowing objects. The airport was closed at 7 p.m., so there was no one there to investigate the sightings at that time. Police said they also received a report from a man in Hove who said he saw approximately eight planes coming in over the sea with no flashing navigation lights toward Gatwick in a dead line. Officers contacted air traffic controllers at Gadwick, who said they knew of no movement in the area. Other believe, others believe a cloud of comet dust is to blame from a meteor shower, which managers of a local observatory said peaked at the night in question with a display of shooting stars. Further investigations will be conducted, but the origin of the or- orange lights over Brighton will presumably remain a mystery. All right. There was also a story, too. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, someone posted it on our message board. But there was a story about uh, some Russia uh, UFO crash in Russia this week. And uh, I tend to, when I hear these, it seems like every week there's at least one UFO report out of Russia or one some sort of paranormal report out of Russia. So I started to take a lot of it in stride. But I guess this one's picking up some steam. Uh, my only question is if something crashed, where is it? Well... Russia's got a history of several crashes. You've got what, the crash in Smirnov. You have Height 611 in Vladivostok. You have the, one of the first crashes that actually happened in their area was at Kaput. Sorry, Kaputnyar. You which can't is, help but pop the peas on yeah, that one, you know. So don't. Yeah, uh, Kaputnyar, which is their version of Area 51. 
the one thing that uh, I just, I mean, I know it has a long history of UFO sightings, but when there's one every week in the newspaper, you know, it just, I start to wonder if it's, all right, now we're just going to jump on everything as a UFO because that sells. So uh, I don't know. Hey, they're, they're they're new to this capitalism thing. You got to give them a got to give them a break. You know they're used to the government controlling the news. So now it's you know any news can make it in. It's all the news. It's fit to print, and even some it's not. Well, that is the week and weird for this week. Remember, if you have anything you'd like to share with us that you think is a little bit strange and unusual, just go to spookysouthcoast.com, click on the message board link. You'll find the week and weird thread there, and you can leave a link or the whole story or whatever you want to do. And if we use it and we remember, we'll give you full credit. Sometimes we don't always remember. So we'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast talking more about dreams right on the other side of this break. This is a dream. I'm not here. I'm at home, asleep. And you're part of that dream. They say a dream takes only a second or so. And yet in that second, a man can live a lifetime. He can suffer and die, and who's to say which is the greater reality? The one we know or the one in dreams? Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. We are back. We're back here on Spooky South Coast, and we're ready to take your calls and your questions about your dreams, uh, maybe what some of them mean, why they are recurring. Maybe you have some more questions about lucid dreaming. You want to learn a little bit more about it, how you can do it, uh, maybe you're not sure if you've had uh, an out-of-body experience or a lucid dream. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But you can get in touch with us here. You can call us, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And for those listening you know, on the podcast at a later time, don't worry about calling into the show live if you can't hear it. Uh, we'll take your calls on the paranormal at any point. Uh, even if it interrupts the conversation a little bit, that's okay because we'd rather be able to give you someone to talk to about what's going on. So if you're listening and you know that it's Saturday night at 10 o'clock, don't be afraid to call in and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to accommodate you. But if you'd like to get in touch with us tonight, you can also jump into the chat room at spiritedsociety.net where an Eagles Angel and Matt Costa are ready to talk to you there. Or you can jump on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com, post your question up there in the live show thread, Dreams in the Paranormal, and uh, we can take your question that way. Matt Moniz is anxiously awaiting them uh, that way as well. And But the best way, as I said, is to give us a call because we have two terrific guests with us, uh, Dominic Adesani of the Lucidity Institute and author Rosemary Ellen Guiley. So let's go back to the phones and, and talk more with them. Are you still with us, guys? Yeah. Okay. Rosemary, you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. Now, this is uh, where, you know, Dominic, when I first approached you about coming on the show, uh, having somebody from the Institute come on the show, I know you're a little bit put off by the idea of spooky South Coast. Uh, sometimes it, <laughs> it it does have that effect on people where they say, well, now, wait a minute, you're going to make this all about scary ghost stuff. And, you know, that's not what we do here. We're We're trying to be alternative news, alternative information. Uh, and, and it just so happens that many of these topics do tie back into the paranormal. And I know that at first you were, you know, kind of nervous about that aspect of it. 
But uh, then apologies for not understanding what you do. Well, no, that's okay. I mean, it's with a name like Spooky South Coast, I can understand. <laughs> you know, if I'm a man of science, uh, I would probably look at that title of the email saying Spooky South Coast Media Request and say trash can. You know, but uh, luckily, you know, we have our own scientist here, Matt Moniz, uh, on board. So that gives us a little bit of legitimacy because Matt Coss and myself would have none on our own because we're just clowns. Right, Matt? Exactly. Okay. Well, you have, you have him with good company. I've uh, read some of Rosemary's material, and I'd like to think we're birds of a feather in many ways. And Rosemary, of course, is excellent for giving the, the paranormal a, a sane and reasonable voice. Well, when you read her books and and you hear her on television and on radio, you realize now. Wait a minute, you know this isn't this isn't something that's really out there. Here's somebody who seems perfectly grounded in in what they're doing. She's always written great material. Well, thank you, Dominic. And and this is though this is where we're going to kind of cross that line a little bit, Dominic. That you might have been worried about. <laughs> this is where we talk. Go for it. Well, because, let's face it, though, dreams are extremely tied into the paranormal and what goes on. Now, not necessarily saying that dreams are paranormal, there's paranormal phenomena incorporated in dreams. Sometimes it's as simple as what we think is something paranormal. We're in that hypnagogic state where we're starting to fall asleep, and it's actually a dream that we're having, and we don't realize it. By the way, Tim, I fully agree. In fact, access to the paranormal, paranormal can be had easiest through the dream state. That's something that I think most researchers in Psy agree on. Um, most of the other Psy experiments that have been tested over the years happen almost exclusively with exceptional subjects. So if you want to do your own personal Psy research, I do believe that the dream state is the accessible state for the average person. Uh, as long as you're doing dream work, I think it's an excellent place to go if you want to move off from the inside and move to the outside of and Rosemary, you've said that in, earlier in the show, you said that you've had some dreams where you've actually uh, had invaders uh, coming into your dream. And I would assume when you say that, you mean not of a human nature. Well, it, it could either be ghosts uh, of the human dead or some kind of um, spirit entity. Uh, and I've experienced both. This is a phenomenon in uh, occultism, uh, in dealing with haunted places that um, people can have their dreams invaded. Uh, it, it may even happen without you realizing it. For example, if you went to stay overnight in a haunted hotel or inn or something and you really didn't know it was haunted, um, but something was able to access you through your dreams, you might have a, a lucid or very realistic dream uh, in which um, the ghost was present, maybe present as a seemingly real person. And um, or you might have uh, a more unpleasant experience, like a hag attack sort of thing, uh, which is a night terror uh, where you feel a, a malevolent presence in in the room um, that may even actually come and press itself upon the bed. Um, these sorts of things are reported throughout. Um, the dream in the dream literature throughout history, and I do think they are. Evident, evidence of one of the ways that we have paranormal experiences. When we're sleeping, we're outside of the constrictions of waking consciousness, and I think sometimes it's easier for these portals or gateways to open up to us where not only we can go into other dimensional realms, but things in other dimensional realms can 
uh, come into our space. The, and the old hag is definitely one that uh, you hear uh, very dominant in people who report paranormal encounters in the dream state. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of similarities in the reports from, like you said, pressing upon the, the dreamer or even, I, I don't know if you want to tie in incubus and succubus attacks into the, the hag syndrome. Would, would those kind of be similar, Rosemary, in your research and your investigations? I think they're certainly related. Uh, in some hag attacks, people just feel a presence in the room, but it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't come close or get on the bed or uh, physically assault them in any way. But then there are other uh, other types of the hag experience that do involve sexual molestation. And uh, that um, can that's reported both by ghosts, and also by uh, non-human entities that we would call demons, the incubus and the succubus. But there are many cases uh, on record of people saying that they have been sexually molested by ghosts. And, and the idea of the incubus slash succubus, uh, you know, because it's kind of gender specific, uh, but the idea of that is directly related into the origin of nightmares. Yes, the, the nightmare... Um, part of the folklore tradition of nightmares is that uh, a demon or a witch comes and invades your sleep and causes you to have a bad dream. And also another type of, of dream, uh, or not necessarily a dream per se, but a, a syndrome that happens a lot to people while they're asleep is the night visitor syndrome. Uh, when I was younger, I used to wake up in the middle of the night and I could I was adamant that there was somebody in the house somewhere uh, originally my original thought was that it was a person in the house, a, a burglar or whatever, and I always thought there was somebody in the house. And as I became older, and I don't know if it's maybe because I read about the topic more, but I became convinced it was an extraterrestrial presence. And that seems to be another factor in a lot of people's dreams is the presence of ETs in your book, as you point out. I, uh, In fact, I've had some dreams like that myself where um, I have um, felt that there were some invaders in, into my home and uh, that they were extraterrestrials, specifically ETs. I've been doing research for uh, almost two years now on shadow people, and uh, this also is a figure that can be either a waking uh, consciousness experience or a dream experience, also a nighttime visitor. Uh, you may wake up, for example, or think you wake up. That is, you might be lucid dreaming, but think you... Uh, you're you're actually consciously awake, and there's a shadowy figure in the bedroom, um, an outline of a person that's really blacker than black. If the room is dark, you can still see the outline, and they often stand by the bed and just watch you. You can't see any facial features on them, but you know they are watching you. And how are you certain when that does happen, if it is in a dream state or in a waking state? Well, ultimately, I think that it, it probably doesn't matter, um, and not that one is inconsequential and, and one is not, but I think the experience bleeds through all states of consciousness, and for some people it may be more of a, a dream or dreamlike experience, and other people may have a waking vision kind of experience, but it's still... Um, described as the same experience. 
I've collected hundreds and hundreds of these cases now, and um, I'm still collecting. If people want to email me their experiences, um, please visit my website, visionaryliving.com, and uh, send me a description of it because um, I'm finding it very interesting to see the pattern shaping up in terms of uh, age, gender, emotional state uh, issues, the stress issues that people are um, experiencing when they have these sorts of experiences, other psychic experiences, uh, and also what these figures do, what they look like, how they behave, uh, the energy that emanates from them. Some, Almost everyone's scared of these figures. Some of them seem to be benign. They don't really do anything overtly, while others... Uh, they don't attack, but they they emanate this feeling of evil and malevolence. Do you think that maybe uh, the reason why some people experience it as a waking event and some people experience it as a dreaming event is kind of tied into what they want to believe, if they want to believe they were awake or if they say, no, I must have been dreaming? Well, certainly, uh, and I think Dominic has probably seen a lot of this in the lucid dreaming community. A lot of times you simply don't know. The experience is so real um, I mean, real in terms of it's very much like waking consciousness that pe- some people just really don't know if they dreamt it or they really experienced it. Uh, dreams to me are are real experiences in another state of consciousness, so it's not a question of real versus unreal to me, but a lot of people grapple with that. I fully agree with Rosemary's assessment. I mean, to say I must be dreaming or I must be awake, they're both potentially just the opposite of what the person thinks they are. Um, one of the things we've learned in lucid dreaming is that once sensory input is shut off, right, when you don't actually see anything or hear anything or feel anything, uh, and your mind is fully awake, all of a sudden the dreamscape creates whatever it will, um, and that your perceptions seem to be, in fact, are 100% percent real to you at the time, so that if you feel there's an evil presence, a hag, a succubus, or an incubus, at the moment, it is real to you. Now, the question of whether it's critical in the empirical world is something else, but the, the uh, subjective assessment is extremely accurate. Um, when we move off to the, say, that there was actually an evil presence from the outside, physically in the room, that's another question. It's something I don't think we have any clear data on. But I think the, the fact that people believe it is definitely the case. Well, Dominic, from an, imperial, uh, an empirical point of view, how do you look at these reports of you know, night visitors of the old hag uh, from a science-based yeah. you know, idealism? Okay, so the first thing that's really very interesting to me is that the incidence of reports of the succubus and the incubus and the hag have trailed off over the years as a percentage, not to say they don't exist anymore, but if you look back at the documentation in the 1900s, it was quite common, uh, 1800s, you know, ditto. Now that we're into the 20th and 21st century, we see much more of the more ambiguous alien uh, creature coming into the room and doing what they will with us sexually or otherwise. So we can see that there is a um, subjective experience that changes with the cultural motifs of the age. Um, when you look at the physiology of what happens during the night in sleep and dreams, you start to understand, I think, a little more of how wonderful the mind and the body are 
in perceptually organizing motions and input. So, for example, um, people oftentimes talk about sleep paralysis or catalepsy, which is where you're lying down in the bed, you're fully awake, and you can't move a muscle. Frankly, this state is very akin to REM sleep. In fact, most people who experience sleep paralysis are transitioning in or out of REM sleep or dream sleep. Now imagine, you have no sense inputs, no sight, no hearing, no tactile sensation, but your mind is 100% awake, and you wake up not being able to move a muscle. What's the first inclination most people have? Something they're dying, they're afraid. And like anything else in the mind, once unleashed, it tends to amplify. So fear feeds fear, and you start to have, for lack of a better word, a nightmare while fully awake. Would you also say that maybe one of the first thoughts that will enter into people's mind if they can't move on their own volition, that they're being held down? Yes. In fact, you know, one of the feelings when you're on your back is that you're being suffocated because you can't fully expand your muscles and your ribcage at will. And then the fear tends to constrain yourself and you feel more constricted and you feel as if somebody were sitting on your chest. In fact, that's the experience many lucid dreamers have when they wake up in sleep paralysis is that they have something weighing down on them. Now, if you didn't know where you were and what you were doing, you would think something necessarily bad was on your chest, potentially suffocating you. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, I can, we can't say for a fact that's what drives these experiences, but the, cor- the correlation between what happens physiologically during REM onset and REM exit is very much akin to the subjective experiences people report in these experiences going back centuries. Yes, but uh, the paralysis only lasts for half a second before the rest of the neurosystem takes over. Well, normally that, that would be true, but many people, um, when they're transitioning in and out of REM, don't snap right out of it. In fact, some people can be in that state for tens of minutes. I'd say it's on the you know the tail ends of the bell curve. Most people move right out, right as you as you indicated. Well, that that's a leftover from when we were in the trees. It's because we used to sleep in the trees and we would prevent our body from falling out. Is exactly. What, why it's there in the first place. It's hardwired into the brain. Exactly. And it, But you still have to have some degree of sleep paralysis while you're sleeping. Um, and otherwise, as, as in some of your documentation mentioned, if, if you don't have... A paralysis while you're asleep, you start thrashing around and acting out your dreams. Oh, exactly. That's why the, the, the speaker on the phone was indicating there's an evolutionary drive here. Sure, if you're a monkey in a tree and you're lashing out and screaming at night, well, the tiger down the way is going to know where you're at and eats you, right? So not only would you fall out of the tree and break your neck, but potentially you'd be morsels for the local lions and tigers and bears. So, yeah, you are physically paralyzed, not for the whole night, but as you transition in through and out of REM sleep, which, as I indicated earlier, can be just a few minutes earlier in the night to upwards of a half hour or 45 minutes later in the morning. And, and sleep paralysis is just one of the many sleep uh, issues that can be mistaken as paranormal activity or can be uh, amplified by paranormal activity right. as well. So why don't we take a quick break, and on the other side we'll get more into some of these uh, some of these disorders, some of these uh, phenomena, and how they could relate to the paranormal. So... Stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast.
Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. And, you know, too much to drink. That could be another cause of bad dreams as well. Was that what you were thinking, Matt Hauser, when you put that bumper together? It was too much to dream. Oh, too much to dream? Too much to dream. I guess I've had too much to drink tonight. Who uh, was that by? The Electric Prunes. The elect- are they going to sue us now? Uh, I think they're all either inebriated or passed away. All right. So, so hey, score one for the spooky crew. All right. <laughs> We're going to get back into the discussion now about dreams and the paranormal. And if you'd like to join in the discussion in the last, oh, 10, 15 minutes or so, give us a call. 508-996-0500, 508-2910-500. Hopefully you've had some dream experiences of your own uh, that you have you know, benefited from. Maybe you've had some that were not so uh, not so positive. Uh, either way, you know, we'd like to hear them if you, if you don't mind sharing them with us, and we'll try to give you an idea of maybe what's going on. And actually, hey, ask and ye shall receive. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, it's me. Hi. <laughs> hey, and so uh, Matt was telling us that you were, you were going to call, and I know sometimes it's, it takes a little time for you to feel comfortable calling. Uh, no, sometimes I'm just listening so hard that I get into the show and I don't even think to call. Well, do you have a dream experience you'd like to relate to, Rosemary and Dominic? Um, well, yeah, they were talking about something um, having to do with sleep paralysis. And, I mean, a lot of times that is the case for a lot of people. But I think the case that I had is sort of particular in its own ways. Um, For one thing, there were other people, um, actually like boyfriends of mine, who had sleep paralysis-type incidents in the house, too. Um, The funny thing is, is you could move, you could kick, you could punch, move your head, but you just... This thing was so heavy, you couldn't actually... Well, a couple of times I did almost get away, but it would actually throw you back on the bed. And this thing would also shake my children's beds and scare them, and they would, like, come... They had bunk beds at the time, so if you shook the bed, both beds would shake, and these guys would come running, screaming out of their bed. Um, I've, like, sort of interviewed a lot of people who have had episodes like mine, and I think in a lot of cases... You are looking at sleep paralysis, and then in other cases, you're looking at actual entities that are causing these things. Well, uh, Dominic, I mean, there is a, a disorder, if I'm correct, uh, where people do stay in that prolonged state longer than they should. Well, I mean, should is a judgment, right? Most mm-hmm. people, if you look at the average pop- in the population, transition out within tens of seconds. But that's an average statistically, right? So as I mentioned before, the statistical bell curve where most of the population fits under the mountain part of the curve. But that's not any one particular person. That's an average. Some of us stay there for tens of seconds, maybe a couple of minutes. Others may be there for several minutes, and it can be quite frightening to be paralyzed in bed without the ability to open your eyes, move an arm. It can be very frightening. But to, to have something uh, that the caller is talking about is is definitely atypical of any of these reports of extended sleep paralysis. I would I would assume. Well, I mean, she was describing, I think, a, a couple different experiences. At least the, the way that I heard the narrative. In some cases, it is a perception of things happening, which would be quite common during, you know, a sleep paralysis episode where the mind creates, you know, um, a vision of what's going on that's exactly real to them. 
On the other hand, she's recounting also um, episodes of people who have seen something happen in reality, which you know isn't paralysis; it's something else anomalous. So, and and do you, does it still occur, or is it mostly just tied into this entity that no longer is there? That does not occur anymore. Yeah. I uh, mean, I, I call it a banishing that I did, but mm-hmm. ever right. since that time, there, there's other activity that isn't actually related to that actual entity. I just think those are things that happen to ghost magnets. <laughs> but, but do you experience any additional sleep paralysis outside of... I have of- not. Ever since that last night when I told it to go and I told it that I banished it, I have not had a bed-shaking incident. My Neither one of my sons have had one. And when you wake up, you're pretty much fully functional? Fully right. I've, I've never woken up paralyzed. I don't get, like, the creeping feeling coming up my bed or the footsteps anymore. You know, there were a lot of other things associated with that thing. There was actually an incident where it took my arm and, I mean, ripped my arm back so hard I was actually seen in the emergency room the, the next day. And I was fighting back that, that particular time I had my baby in the bed. That one's on the website, the Blue Moon. Yes. So every once in a Blue Moon. You know, and, I mean, I was just actually trying to defend my baby. That was all I could think of. And when I reached up with my hand, I made contact with something. And it was strong because it just put my arm back down to the bed again like it was a straw and actually hurt me. And, and see, see, Dominic, sometimes it does uh, get a little bit uh, out of the realm of dreams. Uh, when there... but, but the subjective experience of what she's recounting is true for her. So I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that's important to recognize. Um, and our work really doesn't focus on that area. Um, although it's very interesting to, to hear the story. Well, we, yeah, I think these cases are just by themselves. I think there's a separation between, you know, I do think that there are sleep paralysis incidents that are causing, you know, these types of hallucinations and things. But then you have two boyfriends of mine that experience things like this, and they didn't know about when these things happened to them. I hadn't actually told them about the incidents that happened with me, and they didn't relate them right away. It was actually like months down the road where it was like, you know, I had this really weird experience in bed, and it was like I couldn't get up. And one of them actually, it was like they the thing was pressing down on their arm as if it wanted to make him hit me in the face. And he actually had to fight not to hit me and rolled out of the bed to get away from whatever it was that was trying to cause this. Well, uh, we we thank you for for sharing with us uh, your experiences, and of course, as you said, you, you know, you posted these more in depth on the message board and on. Uh, do you have them on your site as well? Yes, I do. SpiritSociety.net. So, if you yeah. want to check these out and hear a little bit more detail, see if you've had similar experiences, and uh, we we do thank you for sharing. Why, anytime, guys. All right, thank you, and thank you for all your help in the in the chat room as well. Oh, anytime. It's fun. We have a good time. All right, thanks. <laughs> Have a good night, guys. You too. Bye-bye. And Dominic and Rosemary, I think that maybe uh, in addition to, obviously this is an extreme case of, of something, uh, some entity bothering this, this family, but maybe if there is this paranormal factor, then it's quite possible that if people do, are, if they are su- subject to maybe a little bit extra sleep paralysis when they wake up, that entity can use that you know, in their favor. 
they're definitely more susceptible to any sort of suggestion inside or outside. I mean, you're in a much more exposed position, if you will, as, as opposed to when you're awake and in control of your faculties, your body's engaged, and you have the sense input world driving what you experience. When you're in a uh, state of paralysis and you're REM and sleep, you're much more wide open to whatever. Two, two other opposite ends of the spectrum from sleep paralysis. Well, three other, actually. Sleepwalking, uh, restless leg syndrome, which is kind of, kind of a new uh, concept, uh, and sleep apnea. These are three things that I think could be responsible for some of the, the jerking awake, uh, some of the, you know, the, the motion in dreams, of these feelings of being grabbed, uh, being shaken awake. Uh, for, I mean, for example, I'm a sleep apnea sufferer, and I don't know when I'm awoken by the sleep apnea, but uh, my wife would tell me it's like something's shaking me awake because I'm, I'm running out of, you know, that breath stops, and it's like I jolt awake. So maybe some people are experiencing these other symptoms, these other, uh, you know, physically, physiological issues, and it's being tied into the paranormal. Restless leg syndrome especially because it's something that pe- a lot of people aren't aware of, but, it, you know, you just can't keep your legs still all night. They, they're constantly in motion. And maybe you don't think that it's something paranormal, but the person sleeping next to you certainly could. There's no doubt that physical phenomena do affect the content of our dreams. Um, but I also think that there are these anomalous experiences that happen while we're sleeping and dreaming um, that we're engaged with entities from other realms. And sometimes that's the only explanation that seems to make sense to uh, to a dreamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, again, people have reported these experiences throughout history. I think there's something to them that they are a, a class unto themselves um, that we can't find a natural explanation that fits. Well, I, I know I definitely agree with your uh what you say, in at least in the dreamer's way, in your other books, about how when you're in that dream state, you're entering that higher awareness, that higher state of consciousness. And when you do so, you're subjecting yourself to attack just as much as you are to enlightenment. I'd like to put out just a little bit of a word of caution, though. I, I reflect back when I was a teenager having my first out-of-the-body experiences, when I flew over my bed, saw my body in the bed, that, aha, you know, I, this is my soul leaving my body, and there now must be, you know, uh, for me, veridical proof that there's, you know, seven bodies layered in the Eastern tradition and a whole belief system that spawns from the subjective ecstasy of having that first experience of separating from your body. Having had many, many, many more of those experiences later in life and understanding how clear, how crystalline, a lucid dream can be in fomenting that same experience, it gives me pause to say that because I was perceiving myself out of the body, that in fact there was some substance that separated and then gave, you know, this next level of belief that there's a soul that leaves the body and then there must be all these other things because a particular tradition had imbued that in their belief system. The subjective experience is real, but, for example, if we believe that there's a demon because we experienced it in full bloom during whatever state of consciousness, that it must be something outside ourselves, I like to say I put that in brackets. I'm not convinced either way. It's 
very easy to say that everybody else believes this to be a demon from hell or from whatever belief system we want to grasp onto. But I myself haven't proven it for me. And it's, as I said, very easy to say, well, it's in the literature and that people have talked about it for centuries and that it's this uh, other theophysy or the theology that shows what's going on here, this other science of another physics without any other facts other than here's what I experienced that gives me pause. All right. Well, and while uh, they're certainly open to more analysis of uh, not only the paranormal and how we relate to dreams, but non-paranormal uh, factors as well, uh, it's just we wanted to do this show because uh, we feel that there are a lot of physiological things that happen. There are a lot of, uh, you know, just science-based dream aspects of what happened. Neurochemical. E- exactly. But we also know that there is overt paranormal activity in the world, and what better time to interact with us than during yeah. our dreams. Don't get me wrong. I'm not um, oh, no. poo-pooing another pr- view of the experience. I'm just saying to be careful mm-hmm. to jump to other extended conclusions because of the um, subjective uh, appreciation on its surface, right? This is what I experienced, therefore it must be true, and all these extensions of the experience must therefore be true. As, as Matt Moniz always says, you know, how, how do we get to the paranormal? Here, let, me, let me give when, you a little mind. all other normal is right. been, <laughs> been removed. Exactly. We used to argue at the Lucidity Institute years ago about the out-of-body experience situation as opposed to remote viewing. So a lot of us at the Institute have done remote viewing. Um, Stephen LeBurge was on a stipend from the same military spooks that um, helped uh, Russell Targat early on and all the guys in the military program years afterwards, including McMonagall. And uh, we used to play this little experiment with, okay, lucid dreamers, you know you can create a perfect experience of being out of your body. And half the uh, group would say, all right, um, if I can go out of my body and find this target, a la the Monroe model and um, Mrs. Z within the Charles uh, Tart paradigm, if we can go and read these numbers and bring it back after having flown out of our body, there must be a second substance that leaves the body and goes there. Well, after working with uh, remote viewing, you come to understand that there's nothing that needs to leave the body to see something paranormally, that you can merely close your eyes and see it at a distance in time or space at a different place without having to have a etheric body, an astral body, or anything else coming from the Eastern tradition. We also know that remote viewing is very easy to access during a lucid dream. So if I have a dream of leaving my body seeing a target site per the experimental protocol. Was it remote viewing, or was it the out-of-body body seeing target site? Well, th- those are definitely topics for a whole other show, which we'll definitely get into uh, in the future, because we're running out of time for this one. So but we'd like to thank Dominic Adesani from the Lucidity Institute and Rosemary Ellen Guiley for joining us tonight. And you know, hopefully you guys can come back and we can talk about some more uh, in this realm, and we can bring in Jeff Belanger. We'll cover nightmares as well. Sound good to you? Sounds great. Thank you, Jim. All right. Thank you for joining us, and I feel like I should probably say pleasant dreams. (laughs) So, and, uh, of course, next week, Haunted Rhode Island with Tom D'Agostino and uh, maybe some surprise guests. Stay spectacular, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Rest assured, listener, 
that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernaturalist.